I do hope you will join me in Genesis 1. Hope you guys are doing well. It's good to see you. I forgot to mention, I forgot to ask you to fill out an attendance card when I was up here a few minutes ago. So if you haven't done that yet, and you want to get credit for being here, as I, as I mentioned to you in the past, um, we take those up and we hand them to God. So you need to fill one of those out. We are uh, seriously going to be in Genesis 1, and I'd love for you to turn there with me. We'll pretty much stay right there for the next little bit. And uh, we're going to study a, what I have come to believe more than ever is, a incredi- is an incredibly uh, crucial and life-changing phrase embedded right here in this creation account in Genesis 1. Now, if you're there with me, I want you to sort of walk through this chapter with me. I'm just going to point out a few phrases here because I want you to see in the context of Genesis 1, I I, want to help you read this chapter a little bit differently than than maybe you have in the past, or at least to see the trajectory that God establishes as he's recounting this. And I mean, you know the the gist of this. Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2, he says, in the beginning God created. And then he's going to go on and give these six days of creation. So, but, but notice the wording here. And I want to help us to see the significance of this. Genesis 1 verse 3, and God said, let there be light. And I'm not going to read all of this, but just these introductory phrases. God said, let there be light, and there was light. And he saw that it was good, verse 4. Verse, verse 6, God said, let there be. Just notice carefully the wording, all right? Let there be an expanse. And called it heaven, verse 8. Verse, verse 9, God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together. You've got this kind of passive phrasing, you know, let this happen. In verse 10, he says, he saw that it was good. Verse 11, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants, and so on. And God saw that it was good, verse 12. Verse 14, God said, let there be lights. And he made two great lights, verse 16. And at the end of verse 18, God saw that it was what? It was good. It was good. God said, verse 20, let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures. In the verse 21, God saw that it was good. Verse 24, God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. And it was so in the verse 25, God saw that it was, it was good. There is a very significant transition when you get to verse 26. The phraseology, the way that it's framed as he's telling this creation account, the light, the waters, the earth, the vegetation, the lights again in verse 14, the animals of the ocean, the birds of the sky. But then he, and he, and he says, after every time almost, he says, you know, let this happen. And he saw that it was good. And then in verse 26, it changes entirely. And it says this, then God said, let there be, no, 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 it's very, it's much more personal. Let there be light, let there be an expanse. But he gets to verse 26 and he says, and let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now for thousands of years, students of the Bible have been wrestling with what in the world is the significance of the pronoun here, let us make man in our image. It's a Obviously, it's a plural pronoun, right? And they've been wrestling with what in the world is he saying? And what are the implications of this? We're not going to get into all of that this morning. But I want you to see, really here, I want you to see the change 
in, verse, in, in the first part of the chapter, and when, they, when he gets here, he says, let us. It's almost and certainly interpreted in the scope of the entire canon, the entire Bible. It's what, what many people call an intra-Trinitarian dialogue. I mean, within the Trinity of Father, Son, and Spirit, it's, it's like they're having a conversation. It's been very impersonal up to now. Let there be light. Let there be an expanse. Let there be waters and so on. And then when he gets to what he's about to do, God says, let us make man in our image. There's been this building in the language in the first five days and getting to day six, let all this stuff happen and it was good. But then he says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. It's very personal. It is very intentional. It is, I mean, everything up until this point, God's created and it's good. This, this world is good. God made it and we ought to honor that. But there's something special about 26, 27, and 28. Something very special. All sorts of implications. I hope you'll stay with me through this, this part as we look at the text. And then we're going to go as we, as we normally do and think about, okay, this is what the text means, but what does it mean to us? You know, how, how does it affect our, our lives? But I want you to see just the, the way this text is framed. And it's a beautiful thing the way God does this. Let them have dominion, he says, over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So everything that he said up until this point, all this beautiful stuff, it's good stuff out here. But now God is creating humanity. And humanity is given responsibility and dominion over the fish, over the birds, over the livestock, over all the earth, over everything on the earth. All this good stuff of days one through five, God says, let us make man, let us make humanity. And we're going to put him over all this other good stuff. And if you go down to the end of this, which we'll go... We'll, we'll back up in a minute, but at the end of this, God saw, verse 31, God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was what? Are you there in verse 31? Good? It was very good. Let there be, verses 1 through 25, and it's good. It's to be honored. It's of God. God made it. God, we ought not demean the things that God has created. It was good. But then God said, let us make humanity in our image. And he looked at all of this and he said, now it is very good. It is the pinnacle. It is the culmination of God's creation when he makes man and woman. There's this Latin phrase I'm going to put on the screen because I want you to be familiar with this. I want you to, I want you to think about it. And I want you to recognize this Imago Dei language here. Image of God is what it means, but scholar, I mean, people, people coming in on this. This is a, there's, there's so much out there about this. And this image of God language in Genesis 1 is powerful. And all, all this I've been talking about up until this point is just to help you see that there's, there's this key moment in, in the creation week, and this is it. I mean, this is it, the image of God. This is strong language. I think there's some possibilities here. There's some, there's some implications that are pretty powerful. <clears throat> I mentioned to you in the introduction a few minutes ago. The language here is pretty interesting the way that God does this. And I mentioned the, the word vice regent, um, reigning with. In the ancient Near Eastern world, there was this common practice of kings 
having power in a, in a land. And a king who had authority in a land would position what were called icons or images. They would be sculptures or statues. And on those sculptures, on those, on those statues would be the icon, would be the image of the king. And he would position these images, these icons throughout the land. And they were to represent him in the land that he ruled. Well, the language that is used in Genesis 1 to tell this story of creation is that kind of language. The icon, the image language, we're going to put man and woman, we're going to put human beings on this land that I am reigning over, but they are going to be my vice regents. Notice this. Notice what he says. Right after he says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. What in the world does that mean? I mean, I don't think we understand fully what it means. What does it mean that we're created in God's image? I don't know all that, but I, I think we can know a couple of things. And one of them is what he says in the very next phrase, let them have dominion. This is reigning language. This is king language. So I'm going to make, God says, we are going to make man and woman in our image, in our likeness. And what does that mean, God? What, what do you mean by that? Well, here's what I mean. They're going to have dominion. They're going to reign over all this other good stuff that I've created. They are the pinnacle of my creation. They are after my image, after, after our image, after our likeness. We are God's vice regents. You know that the Bible is filled with king terminology. When God established the nation of Israel, God chose, ultimately God chose a king. And, and you know that that's a prominent theme throughout the Old Testament. David is the great king. But he is not the perfect king. He is not the ultimate king. Jesus Christ is going to come and he's going to be the king, right? There's all sorts of king language in the Bible. This is the first part of it. Where God is saying we are reigning with God. That's, that's part of what it means to be in the image of God. We are reigning with God. But there's also this. There's also sonship, childship, if you will. <clears throat> sonship language here. Let me give you a an idea of this or kind of a connection. Luke, in Luke 3, there's a genealogy. There's one in Matthew 1, genealogy of Jesus, right? And then Luke 3, there's another genealogy of Jesus. At the very end of Luke 3, it uses this language. It traces Jesus, goes all the way back, all the way back to Adam. And it says, you know, Seth, the son of Adam, Adam, the son of God. This image, this image that we're creating God's image, that's also child language, that's offspring language. We are, we are the sons and daughters of God. That's what image means. And that's the way it's used of Adam. Adam is created in the image of God. What does that mean? It means Adam is the son of God. Luke 3, the very end of that chapter, you can look at it. End of Luke 3, it says Adam is the son of God. So the image, created in God's image, means that we are the offspring of God. We are God's sons and we are God's daughters. So we are reigning with God and we are God's offspring. We are his sons and daughters. We are all the children of God. That's important to keep in mind. I want to think about some implications with you, but I want you to be, just understand the significance of this Imago Dei, this, this implication here. It's all over the Bible, and it starts right here at the beginning. We are created in the image of God. And I think a lot of the problems we're having in the world right now and in every era and every generation comes from our not understanding this, not believing this and not really internalizing what this means and the implications of it, this Imago Dei, that we are the image of God. We are, we are God's children. All of us are. Okay, 
I'm going to come back to that with some implications in a minute, but I want you to notice the progression here. Glenn was talking about this in the meditation prior to communion. Here's what happens in the story of Genesis. Adam and Eve created in God's image, created to reign with God, created to be God's son and daughter, created to be God's representatives on this earth, on this planet. We're to, we're to be God's uh, vice regents, you know, taking care of things with the authority of God. We're to be reigning over this beautiful world that he's given us, and it's perfect. It's, they're in Eden. I mean, it was a paradise. Everything is as it ought to be, as God intended it to be. Everything working perfectly. Relationship between Adam and Eve is perfect, not marred by, by distrust or by competition or by conflict in any way. There's no sin in the world. It's a perfect existence. We're reigning with God, reigning on God's behalf on this beautiful planet. And then you come to Genesis 3. And what happens when Adam and Eve ate the fruit, when they bought the lie when they believed that it would be better for them to become their own gods than to follow the plan of the God, then everything got messed up. And what you have there is the image of God that was embedded in Adam and embedded in Eve, and there being God's vice regents in Genesis 1 and 2, and the first part of Genesis 3, what happens is that image got messed up. It got distorted in Adam and Eve. It got, it got completely marred. I say completely marred. It's not gone but it is marred, it's messed up as a result of the fall. So you've got the image, the Imago Dei in chapter one, but then in chapter three, that image is messed up. You've been to a fair, to a circus or somewhere, and you've you've got those mirrors, you know those mirrors that they kind of distort your image and they make you look, I don't know, like short and fat or tall and skinny or, you know, your, your body's shaped funny and your face looks weird. You know what I'm talking about, those mirrors? I think maybe in a, in, in a little bit of a way, that's what happened. When Adam and Eve, before Genesis 3, Adam and Eve were, they were the reflection of God. They were reigning with God. There was, there was no sin. There was nothing messing up this world. But then as a result of Genesis 3, You look at Adam and Eve in Genesis 4 and you look at their descendants from then on and you see the image of God but it's distorted. It's not a true representation of of, of what God is. And so after Genesis 3, what do you have? I mean, look at the way the story goes. In Genesis 4, what do you have? You remember? Cain and Abel are born. Cain and Abel grow up. What happens? See, when the image of God is distorted in us, we do all sorts of bad things to one another. And Cain kills Abel, not recognizing in his brother the image of God and murdering his own brother. You, you remember this. And then Cain is banished and, and the world gets increasingly worse. And I mean, things are, there's violence and there's wickedness and there's murder and there's corruption. What's happening? The Imago Dei, this image of God in humanity is all distorted and all messed up, resulting in the flood of Genesis 6 through 9. But, but then, I mean, you see that just the pattern of humanity for the last, for thousands of years has just been all messed up. Why? Because... That image isn't being properly reflected in us. Now, I want to read you a couple of of passages. You may note these down. I'm not putting these on the screen, but I do 
want to read a couple of them with you because this, I believe, is a way of tying the story of the Bible together. There are different ways of looking at it. You've got the image of God in Genesis 1. You've got the image marred in Genesis 3. And then you've got the story. As, as it progresses, you've got the New Testament telling us that what God is doing in Christ through the Holy Spirit of God is He is restoring that image in His people. God is taking that image of God that we've messed up, that we've, we've twisted and distorted, we've presented an image to the world that is so often not really much like God, and God is fixing it. He is, by His Spirit, transforming us. Listen to 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 18. Listen to this language, all right? I want you to see how this ties the story of the Bible together. 2 Corinthians 3, 18, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed in the, into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. You notice that? Transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And, and the way I read that is what God is doing in me and what he's doing in you is God is taking this image that you and I have messed up, the image of God which we've distorted because of sin and our own choices, our own desire to be our own gods. And God is step by step taking that messed up image in you and that messed up image in me and God is gradually fixing it. In that over time, over time, big word for this, big Bible word for this is sanctification. God's spirit is transforming us to look more like God. Or maybe a better way of putting it for that imago day for that image not to be covered up by our own sins and for people to be able to see that in us more and more. I mean, this is all over the New Testament. Listen to Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Do you hear this? To the image of his son, in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. 1 Corinthians 15, 49. Just as we've borne the image of the man of dust. Who's that? Man of dust, that's Adam. We have borne the image of the man of dust. We shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I mean, the way that the New Testament talks about this is we are either going to bear the image of the man of dust, that's Adam. We're either going to be in Adam. We're either going to look like Adam, Genesis 3, or we're going to look like Christ. You see, those are the choices we've got. We've got the image of Adam or we've got the image of Jesus. God in his people is working us into the image of Jesus. One more text, Colossians 3, 9 and 10. Do not lie to one another. This is in a very practical part of the book. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. You hear that image language? It's all over the place. What God's doing in you, in this church, in his people, in Christians all over the world, what God is doing is he's taking that image that he, he put in us at conception. God created us with that image. God is rooting out those things that distort it as he works on us. Let's think about it for a minute. Will you do that with me? Let's think about what it means to us now image of God. Let me say once again, just what I believe 
that Genesis 1 is telling us is that God created everybody in this world with an intrinsic human dignity. That God made us all in His image. Everybody in His image. We all come from Adam. We all come from Adam and Eve. And what He said of Adam and Eve, He says of each one of us, that we bear within us the image of God. We are His vice regent, so to speak. We are His sons and daughters. We bear this intrinsic human dignity because we are created by God. It's not based on what we do. It's not based on what we look like. It's not based on what we accomplish. It's based on what God does in creating us. It's very important for us to see that. You know, this, implica- this, this fact has all sorts of implications. You've heard of Friedrich Nietzsche, who was a philosopher whose maybe most famous quotation is, God is dead. You've heard that before, right? God is dead. Well, Nietzsche's dead. We can't talk to him about it. But he said something else. And I I think this is fascinating because he obviously had very little for Christianity. But he says this, quote, this is from The Will to Power. Nietzsche wrote, another Christian concept no less crazy has passed even more deeply into the tissue of modernity. The concept of the equality of souls before God, this concept furnishes the prototype of all theories of equal rights, end quote. That's a pretty, pretty powerful quotation there. Do you hear that? What he essentially says is this Christian concept, this crazy concept, it's at the, at the issue of modernity. This concept that Nietzsche says is the equality of souls before God. This concept furnishes the prototype of all theories of equal rights. We probably don't agree with Nietzsche on a whole lot of things, but I would agree with him there. That this equality of human souls before God is a principle that's at the heart of Christianity that has all sorts of implications for how we, have, how we view, what did he say? How we view all theories of equal rights. One of the things that's fascinating to me, and I've shared this with you before, uh, is that so many things that are going on in the world right now as far as um, equality and the value of the individual, right? We, we believe in that as a country. In, in the West, we, we believe in the value of the individual. It is a, at the very core of our society that we believe that every person, man or woman, these are things that we profess. I'm not saying we do them very well a lot of the time, but these are things that we profess, that every person, man or woman, black or white, Latino, Asian, whatever, heterosexual, homosexual, transgender. At at the heart of of the way that we think is is embedded this principle that we believe every person has equal value, right? But but that, that that whole suggestion is based on a Christian principle. And that's what Nietzsche is getting at here. That is that this Christian principle is that all souls have equal value before God. That is a Christian principle. Now, our, our culture has distorted that, and it's, it's kind of separated 
it's, it's separated it from its foundation. And a lot of the things that, that many people now believe, they don't believe that it's connected to this Christian value. But Nietzsche saw through that and he said, this talk about equality is rooted in a Christian principle. And I would agree with Nietzsche, with Nietzsche there, even though I think a lot of people miss, I think a lot of people miss this connection. Nietzsche had it, had it right. I'm getting to some implications, but, but stay with me as, as, as we think about this, this principle here. You've heard of the landmark uh, Dred Scott decision that was handed down in 1857. Dred Scott had sued for the right to be a free man. He was a black man. And the Supreme Court of the United States on a 17 to 2 vote said African Americans were not American citizens and therefore were not able to tap into the justice system. There were two dissenting votes the Dred Scott case. One of them was Supreme Court Justice John McLean, who said, quote, a slave is not mere chattel. He bears the impress of his maker, and he is destined to an endless existence, end quote. I think it's pretty interesting. You got Nietzsche, you got McLean, two opposite ends of the philosophical and religious spectrum, I'm guessing, but both of them recognized that the image of God language of Genesis chapter 1, which is at the core of our Christian faith, has all sorts of implications for the dignity of every human being. <clears throat> so you think about how this plays out for you and me in our, in our world today. Think about how this plays out. The, the intrinsic human dignity of every person has a lot of implications for how we view the sacredness of human life. Th think about abortion for a minute. Think about abortion. I think there's a reason why those who are pro-abortion do not want a mother to see an ultrasound of her baby in the womb. Because when that happens, a mother can see that that is not a fetus, it's a baby. And it's not an it, it's a little boy or it's a little girl. They will see what? Humanness. They will see dignity, they will see personhood. You see the implications of this dignity, this, this image of God that, that we as Christians believe is imprinted on human beings at the moment of conception, that that is not a collection of cells, it is a he, it's a she, it's a person created in God's image. And we are not then free to do to that child whatever we might choose to do, like to do. You see the implications of that? It has all sorts of implications in, in every area of life. You think about racism and ethnocentrism. It certainly has come to the forefront of the national dialogue. It doesn't fade it doesn't fade very much these days, it seems. But sometimes it comes to the forefront again because of things going on. Let there be no equivocation on the part of Christians. We believe that every person, regardless of race, ethnicity, or whatever, is created in the image of God and is of equal value before Him. There ought not be any wavering or any kind of equivocation on the part of Christians 
when it comes to the dignity and rights of every human being. You see, when God says this, let us make man in our image, we're all there. We're all there. It doesn't matter our ethnicity. We all go back to Adam and Eve. Every race, every ethnicity, every one of us, we go back to Genesis 1, 26 and 27. We're there. And this has all sorts of implications. Well, you know, what, what happens when we commit the sin of racism, of ethnocentrism, what happens is we are able, for whatever reason, we're distorted. This image of God thing is being distorted in us. It's being distorted in our neighbor. And we are able in some way to dehumanize a person, to, to um, delegitimize another person. We are, we are able to make him or her and other different from us, not like us, and somehow less than us. That's what racism is. That's what ethnocentrism is. It is no, you've, you've read some literature coming out of certainly, uh, you know, Nazi Germany in the 30s and 40s where it's interesting. I, I, I've read that and then it, it kind of, you know, God brought this to heart this week as I was reflecting on this. A lot of the language that Nazi Germany used of, of the Jews in the 30s and 40s, you remember, you remember what they called them? There were, there were a couple of things that I've noticed. They called them swine. And they called them vermin. Those words, if you read some of that literature, come through again and again and again. Why is that? Because in order to do what they did, they had to dehumanize them. They had to make them something other than a human being with the dignity of being God's children. And so they distort that imago Dei in order to do what they did. You see, when we view People, when we view a child, when we view a person as a son or daughter, a child of God, it changes the way we treat him or her. So many things, you know, we could talk about. You think about this in the area of sexuality, the way that we view people. There are ways today in which women or men are objectified and being nothing more than an object through which, often not through whom, but an object through which we satisfy our sexual desires. And that happens through pornography. It happens through sex trafficking. What is happening in each of those, in each of those sins? A person is being dehumanized, is being objectified, is being somehow not on the same plane as we are and doesn't bear in him or her this notion, this intrinsic human dignity that flows out of being a child of God. Certainly I mentioned the Dred Scott quotation a moment ago, or the quotation from um, Justice McLean with a, in the realm of slavery, which has... A long history, of course, in our own country, but it is still a very prevalent thing in many parts of the world even today. And what happens with slavery is that people are dehumanized. That image of God isn't fully believed to be present in the person who is put into a position of slavery. Let me read something to you because I think it's important for us as Christians to recognize this. Any ideology... Any thinking, any position, anything 
that puts politics or party above people is wrong. Anything that enables us to diminish the God-given dignity of another human being is wrong. Any thought that allows us to think that we are in any respect more valuable than another human being is sinful. If I identify more with my race, my nation, my gender, my sexuality, or my political party than I do with my identity as a follower of Christ, I'm allowing this sinful world to shape me more than my God. See, there's so many pressures put on us, so many pressures around us, so many things that are going on around us. I urge us as a church to recognize what God is doing in us, what God is doing, in, what, what He's doing in, in the church, what He's doing in the body of Christ is He is, he is taking us. And, and that image of His is distorted in us in many ways. You and I have distorted it. We've messed it up. But what God is doing in us, if we believe what the New Testament teaches about this, is God's Spirit is working on us to clear away the distortions and to help that image to be clearer and clearer. And as that image becomes clearer and clearer in us, you know what it happens as far as the way that we view other people? is it helps us to see that image more clearly in the people around us. It helps us not to make judgment based on superficial, external things. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We have borne the image of the man of dust, but we shall also bear the image. And this is what God is doing in you and me, folks. This is what he's doing. We shall also bear the image of the one of the man from heaven. See, in this body as it is now, plagued by the results of sin, we're never going to get there fully, but we will one day see what the New Testament teaches. There's always this trajectory that's heading toward, heading toward the end. And what happened in Jesus when he was resurrected from the grave 2,000 years ago, God is gradually conforming us into the image of Jesus, and at the end, God is going to resurrect us and he is going to make us fully into the image of Jesus, which has been distorted by the fall and by our own choices. And God is going to make us into the image of Jesus. The challenge for us as a people, as a church is, let's live like people who are in the image of Jesus and not in the image, to use Paul's language, of the man of dust. If you're not a Christian this morning, we invite you to come to faith in Jesus Christ. That image in you is distorted. It is. We've got to recognize that it's messed up. You've messed it up. You've made choices that have brought dishonor to the one who created you. But, but the good news is, the good news is God's Holy Spirit wants to come into your life. And he wants to take that image that you've messed up, that's gotten distorted, and God wants to start conforming you into the person he created you to be. You can come today with faith in your heart, confessing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, putting him on in baptism, dying to self, being raised out of the watery grave and to walk in newness of life, God begins his work on you. Won't you let him today? Won't you submit to him? Won't you begin that walk with Jesus Christ to let him 
make you the person that he created you to be, that you want to be, that, that you need to be. We invite you today, if you need to respond to this invitation for baptism or for prayers of confession or prayers of you need encouragement from your church family, we're here to do anything we can to help you. Let's stand. Let's sing this song.